Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Science argues that people are either left-brain or right-brain thinkers. Left-brain people are more likely to be analytical, while right-brain thinkers tend to be more creative. However, today's guest, Jordan Brooks, defies this thinking by straddling both sides of the spectrum. A native of Barrie, Ontario, music was one of Jordan's passions growing up. But upon graduating from university, he found himself in the world of ad tech. He's held roles at Adconian, Olive Media, and was one of the early employees at Cadrion's Canadian office. As a matter of fact, if you go through his LinkedIn profile, you'd think that he's completely a numbers guy. Jordan has taken all of the collective ad tech and data experience and founded Control-X, a cut-the-crap agency. But he hasn't stopped there. Indulging his creative side, Jordan recently launched Canada Brands, a brand new video production studio dedicated to telling the entrepreneurial stories of Canadian cannabis purveyors. Control-X is my ad tech, martech consultancy. Basically, I, I because I did so much in data, I started to build relationships outside of that. I've done 16 DMP integrations. Um, so it, it was kind of the... When, it, when I left my previous role, it, w- it was time to go out on my own. I, I felt I had enough experience. So I just started that working with a bunch of technology companies, some brands, some just private organizations that were looking to monetize their data or commoditize it, if you will. Um, Canada Brands is actually my new newest project. It is a, a video production service or a video production uh, company where we're, we're essentially wanting to make uh, mini document document series on uh, on the cannabis business or the cannabis businesses, uh, primarily starting with dispensaries now, letting them tell their stories. As, as many people know, the, the advertising rules and advertising and marketing rules around cannabis are, are, are fairly stringent and they've been blocked out by, by the major players, you know, like the Googles and the, the Facebooks and what have you. So I, I was just developing it on... Uh, wanted to develop a product or, or a service to to help that. I'd been consulting with uh, Lift & Co as part of uh, Control-X for almost a year before uh, COVID-19 hit. And it was it was obvious to me that they, the LPs were underserved and where they could market. And they had no channels to uh, choose other than standard display. Everybody knows video is more impactful. So we wanted to create more videos. So it's, it's essentially me, me, hundred uh, percent of my time. And then, uh, you know, hundred percent of my wife's support. This is an interesting story you've got there, Jordan. So it's, it's very left brain, right brain. Cause when I was doing my due diligence, getting the questions together, all I saw was really a lot of the, a lot of your data experience working, yep. working at Iconian and so forth. So it's interesting to finally have a guest that's kind of mastered both sides of it. But before we go any further, I want to start from the beginning. Where are you from? Well, I was born in Huntsville and I grew up in Barrie. So kind of, you know, bedroom community. My mom commuted in into Toronto uh, for the better part of 20 years uh, until we left. So, I mean, so you spent a lot of your time before you relocated in Toronto in in small time, sorry, small town, northern Ontario, I should say. Uh, tell us a little bit about what life was like growing up in, say, both Huntsville and Barrie. So Huntsville, I wasn't there for. I, I it was essentially, I think I was five or six months old. Um, I drive past the hospital on the way to Algonquin Park, but that's really my only connection with Huntsville. Um, Barry, Barry, I, it was it was awesome. It was a bedroom city, so most of my my are both bedroom city. Yeah, most of my uh, 
my friends, their parents either worked in manufacturing in the in the city or they commuted to Toronto as well. It was I, I it was kind of booming at the time, right? Like I think there was forty thousand people when I was born, and there's there's probably a hundred and forty thousand now. So I got to I got to experience a lot of the yes, there were small town shops, and yes, they have little little cool festivals for the artsy side. But also, I remember when the Walmart went in, so so it kind of, uh, kind of, kind of got yep. com- commercialized along the way, um, which was pretty 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 great. I left Barry thinking I would never go back. Um, it's it, you know that standard small town smaller town uh, story where people you know the the only time you see it is in the rearview mirror, and I and and I had all intentions of 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 moving to Toronto to figure out my career, and that's kind of I've been here for thirteen years now. And that's probably three years too long. <laughs> um, so, so my wife, my wife and I are planning uh, our escape out. We're actually going to leave the city in February. When you moved to Toronto, though, living in like say small town northern Ontario, and I know we really can't say that too much about Barrie because it's it's basically becoming the fastest growing suburb. Yep. Was there a bit of was there a bit of like culture shock? Honestly, yeah. It was. I'd never listened to country music so much as when I moved to Toronto. Uh, for some, really? yeah, for some reason, for some reason, it was it turned turned me right to classic rock. There's a great radio station, Rock ninety five in in uh, Barry, and so I, I when I first moved, I was my mom had bought a condo um, at Young and Davisville, and so I I was living there. She she didn't live there. She actually lived with her husband in uh, in another area, of Toronto. And so I lived I lived in the condo. Came came back uh, for the summer and. I, rem- I remember kind of trying to acquaint myself with like Young Street and the cross, you know, the grid of, yep, of the city the and was was walking around listening to like Toby Keith and such, <laughs> <laughs> try, trying to not be sad that I left Barry, even though I wanted to leave. It was kind of kind of strange. Speaking of music, though, you cite kind of three things as your hobbies growing up, one of them being music, cars, which you and I could talk about. Yeah. That could be a separate podcast altogether, uh, and then, and then skateboarding. Let's start. Yeah, let's start first with music, though. What was it all country though? Because you mentioned that. No, but... no, not at all. So, so country, country was kind of like the guilty pleasure. I mean, and, I mean, it goes, <laughs> it goes through ebbs and flows, right? Pop music or pop, whatever's popular at the time. Um, you know, you had Garth Brooks and Alan Jackson when I was growing up. So, it, when it was popular on a on a on a popular channel, if you will, that's um, true. I listened yeah, to that. that but literally, literally every kind of music. My dad's a huge music music guy. I've grown up playing playing guitar. Um, oh, really? What kind of what kind of guitar? So I had a I had a Squire. So an, a late, Stratocaster or uh, uh, no Telecaster. Te- telecaster. So I telecaster. had that. Yeah, that was my dad's. Um, we put a maple neck on it, and it was like the late '80s one before it was acquired by their their uh, their subsidiary. Uh, that does kind of the cheaper version of the Squire. This was the kind of the American series Squire. So a beautiful, beautiful guitar. My dad still has it. He actually collects guitars. He's got a uh, Les Paul. He's got a couple other ones. They're works of art. <laughs> oh, no, I completely agree. And so are cars. Absolutely. Talk to me. Oh, so, talk to me. Like, so, like what, what poster did you have hanging on your wall growing up? Man, so it's I've been fairly steadfast against uh, on my Lamborghinis <laughs> growing the coon, up. The Countach? Countach all, <laughs> all the way to Diablo. Yes. Um, I, I inherited those posters from my dad. Um, we had like posters like Porsche 993 and stuff like that. And I, I was I, I was just always captivated by the by the machine. My, my grandfather had a bunch of amazing cars. Um, you know, like the old, like the old style Monte Carlos. He had a, he had a, one of those, one of those, uh, sixties, sixties, uh, Chevrolet with the big, um, 
the kind of the fin tails and everything. Like oh, just, yeah, no, like the Bel Air. Yeah, the exactly. Yep. Exactly. So, so with the big fins, and he had. Uh, I said Monte Carlo. He had a couple, couple other ones. Obviously, they escape me now when I'm being recorded. My dad had a my dad had a '60s Mustang in high school. Uh, he oh, had a God, had a. Great beautiful, to hold on to. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful car, right? And he like a late late seventies uh, Trans Am, and uh, you know the ones that kind of looked the same as the Camaro. Um, yeah, they and, they shared the same chassis and engine. Yeah, exactly. So so he had one of those. Uh, it, it was red. He got it painted black. It was an awful awful color. Um, <laughs> well, I guess I can't send this podcast to him. Um, <laughs> so I, I was just always grew up around cars and liking cars. I like the mechanics. I like the machinery. I I bought a uh, nineteen nineteen eighty nine uh, five liter GT when I was in high school. Oh damn. Uh, yeah, so the the first first or the last year before fuel injection of that body style, so that that old boxy uh, b- body style had had the uh, hatchback on it. It was the you know the one you wanted, right? It was. Uh, the, it also shared a body temporarily with the Mercury Capri because yeah, we're talking it, about the ones that do not have the rounded headlights that are molded to the body; they're actually punched in to the frame. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I know yep. what you're talking about. Yep. So the, so had that. I never actually drove it other than you know unlicensed around the block a couple times. <laughs> But I was in Barry, right? So it didn't matter. Um, so I, I, I was fascinated by that. I'm still, still to this day, car guy. I still want a, a SRT8. I've had, I had, a, I had a, a Charger RT when I, when I was working at Olive. I had a Jeep JK the first year when it had four doors. I drive a Chrysler 300S now with the Beats by Dre system and, and everything. So you I'm sound always, like a very loyal Fiat Chrysler guy. It's funny because I, I grew up kind of Mopar, right? Like my 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 grandfather had a LeBaron, like that classic LeBaron, with the uh, with the vinyl with the vinyl on the roof and everything. And I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, my my dad my dad had a uh, Chrysler Dynasty at that time too. So the one that if you bought it now you could turn it into a lowrider, but at the time it kind of looked like a grocery getter. <laughs> um, but they, I don't know. I, I guess Mopar was just ingrained in me. And oddly enough, my my uh, wife's or my father-in-law is a is a Mopar guy too. Match made in heaven. That's right. Skateboarding. That's something I tried to get into in high school. Fell off. Couldn't get into it big skater yourself yeah there was like we spent a lot of time doing it was i good at it probably not i had i had friends that that uh that skated a lot some of them still do some of them are professional snowboarders and crap like that now so they're like it was it was kind of ingrained i think i'm not sure what it was i think it was all because i was i was born in 1985 so if you look at 1995 to around 10 you know, the skateboarding started to happen and a lot of things happened with music. And I think the, the skateboarding culture and the music culture kind of grew in together. Um, plenty, plenty of times raiding, uh, raiding construction sites around Barrie for, for wood, for ramps and stuff, such like that. But I think it was, it was more the, um, more the more the group effect or the 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 community and, and the spending time with your with your group of friends i tr- i tried to keep up with the skater culture and i couldn't i found out the hard way and correct me if i'm wrong but if you wore airwalks you were a poser and real skaters wore vans and then i remember when nike started to get into skateboarding culture and putting out shoes and they, you might remember that they had that commercial where it was like what if we treated other athletes the same way we treated skaters and the skater culture at my high school was adamantly against nike as well it's like all of a sudden it legitimized airwalk you yeah. guys find that as well 
Absolutely. So I had airwalks. I had one pair of airwalks and then I, I, I switched to vans right after that. So it's, fun, it's funny you say that. Oddly enough, it's been since my wife and I got married, I'm no longer allowed to go into a West 49er van store. <laughs> <laughs> Which is that's, funny. that's all I would wear. <laughs> Which is weird because vans is making this like cultural resurgence. Like oh. out of nowhere they're coming back. The, the amount of screenshots I've sent her from the van's website is, is obscene. You cite your paternal grandfather and your maternal grandmother as yep. being your biggest influences. Why them? So I came from a split family, right? So my, my parents divorced when I was very young. I don't remember them together. That's probably best, frankly. But I, I, they they both took a very big part in, in ra- raising me. I should, I should note that my parents always lived in the same area and I, they were cordial and everything and if if they were both in one of the or if they were both in one of our living rooms it mean, meant I was in trouble <laughs> um, but but my grandfather like he was he was retired my grandmother wasn't so before I before I went to school or even like half day kindergartens and stuff like that I would go to my grandfather's before before class or before school and he would pick me up and we would ride around play games and and go pick up my grandmother for work he was a he was a a an amazing man. He uh, was like a firefighter in the Canadian military for like 40 years. He, he fought in World War II and he just, just a lot of knowledge. He was, he was the primary, primary cook in his house and, and he was the primary gardener in his house, both things that I've, I've attached onto. So for me, the, the, that, that old style gender roles never really, never really came because I had him. Um, it, it, it was, it, to me, the guys cooked in the house. That's how I saw it. On the other side, my my grandmother was like hippie and and a, a fe- like staunch feminist, and was just it was great being around her. She she raised me in a lot of value. She t- she talked me talked to me like an adult when I was eight, and we would go and we would go on dates where we we could go and uh, sit in the food court at the mall and just talk. And this was back when you could smoke, so she'd be hacking darts while she would, <laughs> well, well in, in the in the smoking section, you know, the five tables in the same in the same room that. You're allowed the to little, smoke it. The little tin ashtrays that were pretty exactly. muffin tins. Exactly. <laughs> what you're talking about. Yep. Exactly. When I picture that, I think of the little tin ashtrays. So, and she was just, she was just amazing to me. And my, and coincidentally, they, those two grandparents lived maybe a five minute walk apart in Barrie. My mom and I moved in with my grandmother for like three years. So from kindergarten to grade three, I lived with her and I was spending the mornings and the afternoons at my grandfather's house. So I had a, a ton of interaction with them. So they they just, they've molded me in a way that's almost indescribable because of that, that kind of uh, the, the culmination or the, the, the way I grew up around them. What was your first job ever? So my first job, I I ended up, uh, there's a, a recycling plant in Barrie called Barry Metals, aptly named, I suppose. The, the, it uh, gets to the point. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the, I, and it was just a, a, a scrapyard, basically. So they had scrapyard and they, they melt down stuff and they build extrusion and, and, and everything for like, you know, the girdle, girders and stuff like that. Almost said girdles. Um, <laughs> girders and, and so the, like high quality steel. So it was, there was a lot of commercial side of it, but then there was a uh, was a, a recycling aspect where people just, you know, they bring in their old cars and they fill it with a bunch of crap and, and trade, it in for, trade it in for money. I actually, I was, I was 
14, 13 or 14 when I, when I worked there, I lied and told them I was, I was 16 uh, and they bought it. Like I, I, like I had, I had facial hair in grade four, so I could get away with a lot of stuff with in that time, just by looking older. No one asked um, to see a driver's license or any form no, of ID, <laughs> not honestly, birth certificate. nothing, nothing. It was, it was crazy. I mean, I'm not really surprised knowing the, knowing the people that run it and, and like, it's a great job. Don't get me wrong, but it was just like, okay, hustle, get in the door, right? Like it was no nonsense. They'll tell you shortly if you're not, uh, if you're no, no longer employed, but it was, it was my first job. I uh, coincidentally, my second job was, was, uh, at McDonald's. So I went from making like $18, which I thought was crazy. Like, how can they only pay me $18? <laughs> and, and I go, I go to McDonald's, and it was, I, it's when they had that student wage. I'm not sure if that's still a thing. Where like six eighty five was minimum wage, and six forty was student wage. I remember so that. Yeah, I, I learned a hard, I learned a hard lesson there at, at fourteen, and I think that probably drove me a lot. It, it gave me a lot of passion and and kind of the work ethic, or at least taking pride in what you do. Um, especially when I went to McDonald's versus going to from Barry Metals, I, I had to, I had to, had to take pride in my job in order to move up. And, and in order to excel, it just had to be happy. Just choose happy. <laughs> no, that's a great philosophy. When you Was McDonald's more of a high-stress environment than Barry Metals? Honestly, no. Um, so, I so you found fast, fast food more relaxing than Barry Metals. So, yeah. At the same time, I, I worked with probably me and my, like, 10 of my skater friends um, from, from public school all worked there at the same time. Ah, uh, okay. So, so we had we had a crew, right? Like there was a bunch of us that worked there. We always had fun. We were always joking around, and I think that translated across the counter. I I, I get mad when I go through drive through or fast food place, and I don't see them having fun and being being teenagers, right? I I and and I mean we had the added advantage is all the all the managers at McDonald's were nineteen to twenty one at the one I worked at. So we were sixteen year olds. There was a liquor store across the street. Managers would buy us. <laughs> managers would buy us booze before our bush parties. Man, I do sound like I'm from the country. <laughs> no, no, this is this is great. Look, people listening to this from suburbia, like me, are like, we totally missed out. Yeah, you definitely did. <laughs> there's there's roads through the places we used to party. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, what brought you to Trent University, and why study business? In high school, I was the I was the double cohort year and the and the first one, right? So we were we were the competition with people that did OAC, and I was the I was the uh, grade twelve that was going in. So you I pretty much applied everywhere, I, and I did get accepted from Trent the first time. But what landed me there was I went to Lakehead for uh, my first year. I was eighteen, and I Lake, met, Lakehead's so, in North Bay, right? Uh, Thunder Bay. Thunder Bay. Sorry, Thunder Bay. Yeah. Yeah. So. I went there. I was 18. Um, actually met one of my best friends, Grant LaRiche, who people should know or will know. And and after four months, I think both the school and I had decided that we should go our separate ways. <laughs> so so that like how actually, you frame it like a negotiation. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a it was a mutual departure depart, um, a mutual separation. Fact is, uh, she just wasn't that into me. Um, so I went from, I went from there and I came back, came, went back to Barrie. So I had still had moved to Toronto at that point. 
and started working started working at a, at a manufacturing job, as you do when you move back to Barrie. I kind of got stir crazy. I started managing a restaurant at the same time. I had always worked at like Eastside Mario's and, and there's a chain called Moose Winooski's. I don't even know if it's a chain anymore. There used to be one in Mississauga, but now it's only uh, Barrie, I believe. But always line cook. That Cooking is another one of my passions. So I started to move into the restaurant industry and it's, it's just, it's a crazy industry to be in, especially right now. Like we can, with the COVID-19 impact, but I, from the, from the restaurant industry got really stir crazy and just decided to call, call Trent and be like, Hey, do you, do you can I come? I chose business because it seemed like the good thing to choose, like businesses and everything. And, and I think at my age group, that was kind of the popular choice or, or with, you know, say, say, plus 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 or minus two years i would say there's probably a lot of people that took went to business school because they they thought that was a good idea and i'm not 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 bashing business school by all means but hindsight's 2020 right mm-hmm, i agree I didn't, I didn't i didn't fully enjoy myself i did things that did the courses that i that i had to and and kind of went through it i didn't find anything new I've always kind of been entrepreneurial and, and I've read a lot of business books growing up. I, mean, I can't, I, for some reason I can't get into fiction. So I always end up writing, reading biographies or reading about business and that kind of thing. So honestly, the, when it got to business, my business degree has helped me most now, but it took 15 years or 20 years to either, either have a benefit. So what was your first media job then after graduation? So, um, I didn't know I didn't know what what industry I wanted to be in. Frankly, I, I moved back to Toronto. I started working at Hemingways again. I worked there for most of my university and and a, and a fair amount after. Um, and I I just it was Grant uh, Larice that that got into the industry working at Sweet Sixty Six. So I I met you know Chris Quinn, met uh, Carolina Jung, uh, Aaron, Aaron Ron, like Marcus Templer, Marcus Biafore, like all of these people. Um, that I'm still, you know, friends with and, and what have you. Met all of them really early on in their careers. Uh, Grant kept going, and then I started learning about ad tags and 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 the AdSense tags, and kind of made my own job because I couldn't really find one. You know, they say like one year experience or whatever, but I, I couldn't find that, so I decided to make it. Ended up ended up um, negotiating negotiating uh, some deals with some some let's let's. Call, couple couple like hip-hop sites couple like hockey sites and just they it, it was that same old network story like they didn't have direct representation they had adsense tags uh for canada no direct representation and it was kind of like i didn't buy any of their inventory but if i brought them an io they would take it mm, and gotcha, at, okay and, and at that point i i changed my phone number to a 416 number i i put my office address as one king west and uh just <laughs> what is it one king west is a there hotel. even a condo there? Okay. So I put I put it at, at that. I changed to a four one six number, and I just started calling people, um, going in going into like Ben Simon Byrne and and Zig at the time, and all of these all of these smaller agencies, uh, Henderson Bass before it was HBK, and just started pitching pitching what I had and and kind of learning along the way because I'd, I'd have a I'd have a slide up and people would say so how many uniques you'd get and I'd be like that is a great question I'll, I'm going to get back to you then the next time I do a presentation I have the uniques on the slide oh so you're and, learning on the fly exactly so I, I learned to do that and actually during that time um, it happened that that Grant and Aaron, Grant and Aaron were friends so I would hang out with 
Aaron a bunch. And when it when I saw that Adconian was hiring, I just I kind of I just applied. I went in and and uh, and chatted with her. I think like we were fr- we were friends still still to this day. And it was just like like she knew my personality, so she knew where I could go. And I, I applied for an ad ops job, and she she took me for her team to go on the media team because it's more of a biz dev role. You're essentially chasing down the chasing down the networks or the people to fill your network. So you're calling Rubicon, you're calling Ad Adbright, calling Admeld, like all those old old names pre consolidation, and and getting uh, just you know vertical verticalized tags for the network, and and that's basically how I started. You had two roles there at Adconian. And I got to tell you, personally, it's nostalgic hearing that name. When I saw that on your LinkedIn profile, I was like, man, there, and even you said Rubicon. I'm like, these are names I have not heard in God knows how many years. Yeah. You had two roles there, media account executive and director of business development. Uh, what was the difference between the two? So, so they were, they were all in the same line. So this is the greatest thing about, I always, you always think your first job is, is whatever, whatever tools you have, you, you probably think maybe they'll be better. Maybe they'll be worse. Or, or from, frankly, for me, I didn't even know. I, I figured they were, they were standardized tool across tools across the industry. So when I went, Adconium was great with, with their, their transitions. So you start at as a media account executive and you go into a media account manager or ma'am and, and, and you have that program. And what they had was a sheet that just said the things you needed to tick off, the things you needed to do and how many months you needed to do them for before you got your promotion. And this is ad network days. So, so money was no object in terms of, in terms of, uh, in terms of increasing people's salaries, because if they were willing to chase that, so going from 35 K um, a, a, a day, a year, I needed to make more money because I was working in a restaurant before that and having an untaxed income. So I asked Erin, she's like, here's the list of things you need to complete. So fire started firing into that. That's why the growth was so, so, um, so quick. I mean, in terms of responsibilities, it was, it was day to day nitty gritty stuff. And then, it, and then the partnership development thing came around cause it's like partnership development exchange platforms and whatever. There's like 36 characters in that title. And, and functionally, I just started working on what we would now call programmatic so ah. we had we had a we had a uh, we had an ad ad network obviously and an ad server and I was calling Rubicon for those tags and I was managing margins so you do you know a, a portion of of rev share commitments and a portion of CPM commitments because you can make higher higher margin on a CPM if if you sell it for more so so what we started looking at was that Nexus user interface and how can we how can we drop creative tags that are actually our ad network tags. And with the product people in in Santa Monica from Adconium, we kind of built out this process where, whereby I didn't have to buy anything on the, uh, from a network. I just used programmatic, used the real time bidding aspect of it. At that time, uh, <laughs> at that time, AppNexus was an auditing creative, so <laughs> so so you put in one campaign, right? <laughs> you put in one campaign, and then you start serving your entire network on that. And and that's really where I where I got the chops, right? Like that's that's what propelled me into the olive side because I knew how buying was going to happen. I kind of foresaw how how that that buying activation and where those uh, the desks or the what would become the trading desk many years later uh, started started building. You brought up all of media. Let, let's jump in on that one. So all of media, because rest in peace, it's no longer uh, around. Although they did throw great parties. So what brought you to Olive Media? Did you find that role? Did the role find you? And then just tell everyone what Olive Media was. Olive was an amazing uh, rep shop, site rep shop, like uh, Torstar Digital. And, and 
known for its people and its parties, right? Like th- that place was awesome. I, I, I get goosebumps thinking about how much fun I had there, even the short time. Frankly, I, w- I went there to, I went there to work with Maladin. I, I oh, heard I'm familiar of, with Maladin. Yeah, yeah, I know Maladin. Right? Milan Reykjavik. So he he was he was kind of Grant held him in in high regard, and and I followed Grant around. So so I I held him in high regard too. But he was also I was actually selling to Olive via a private marketplace um, from Adconian. So we were familiar with each other, and 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 Natasha Natasha Kulis, uh, was there was the kind of the BD person, and so we all got we all started talking about private marketplaces, and then I saw the job, and it and it basically called my name. Um, it had everything they needed, and I had I had the experience, and at that time, I don't think anybody else really did. Right? You might you might have the the higher up people that did CPACs and like Matt Thornton and and, and people like that that are that are that were probably way higher than that caliber of role that they were looking for. So I think I was, I was one of a handful that probably could have in honestly um, applied for it. And yeah, so the, the role kind of found me. I, and it was a great place because, because they had, they had premium and exclusive relationships that that's, you know, the remnant game, like getting rid of that remnant inventory needed to be a thing. And now there was another outlet. You didn't need to put it in OBR or their, their performance network and try and manage performance and margin when you could just sell it out to the, to the, to the greater internet population. You mentioned that it was a short stint at Olive. And then from there, you made the jump to Cadrian, which we should say is, I mean, it still exists, but they rebranded Matterkind, but we're going to call it Cadrian because you yeah. were there when it was called Cadrian. Uh, so again, how did you find that role? Did it find you? And what was your first? I know that you had a series of promotions there, but tell us about your very first role there and what Cadrian looked like when you started. For sure. So, so it will always be Cadrian in my mind. I should I should note that um, uh, that that happened the same way as uh, Adconian. Basically, I Aaron was there, and Aaron was was the technical director, and I think she was like higher three or four on that. And uh, technical director was in charge of a lot of the data stuff, a lot of the a lot of the proprietary technology, and just kind of the product management of that. And Aaron, as Aaron does, was doing the operation stuff. So, she, so they had kind of bandwidth uh, to fill with uh, Aaron moving to the to the uh, director of operations role. So I. She she called me and said, "Hey, you should be technical director." And that's basically what happened. I met them a couple times, and and started. I think probably a couple weeks later. Like it was a pretty quick turnaround. I was I think I was hire number eight. So it was a small team, but like wicked wicked good people, uh, both personality wise and at their job. So we were small, agile, nimble at the time. We were Tessa. Tessa always tells the story about fi- uh, looking in turn and not having any geo targeting across Canada, so you could just target Canada, and that's exactly what it was like. We were we were ripping apart platforms in the beginning of agency trading desk, trying to figure out how Canada is going to navigate this, and so it was a lot of fun, a lot of great time. And then every person we hired for for a long time was an, was an amazing person, like amazing fit. We were, we were huge on the culture there. So I have nothing but good things to say about any of those people. They are all still in my heart. I think fondly of them. Um, it was just when I, when I left, it was my, t- my turn to move on. And also I did like five different roles there. So. Oh, oh yeah. I'm looking, I'm looking through this. I mean, 
you said technical director was the first one, but director yeah. of product, director of product and operations, director of data. I mean, just give us kind of a quick summary of each one, like director of product. You moved into that role. How did that differ from technical director? So technical director was kind of the 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 lower the lower level of that of that equation, right? So we we didn't really have a product team, and at the time, Cadrian Cadrian in the in the the actual product team in the U.S. didn't really want to give up control over product. So the only reason it was called a technical director was because of my fondness for dance and <laughs> and um and the fact that that they didn't want to give the impression that there was product people outside of uh san francisco okay. so so what happened was is i was basically doing the product stuff like we had a, a global global checkup checkup team and they they started to realize that canada was a a significantly different different market than the u.s which they hadn't quite learned yet we were we were more akin to like an australia or a uk both of which kind of go rogue and have their own product team. So once again, to Tessa's credit, she lobbied for for me to be actually called the product person, and that way we could we could we could you know cultivate better relationships with our with our internal partners, with our DSP partners, and that kind of thing. Because they would essentially look at my title and go, "Okay, yes, we do need to do this for him because he's the Canadian person for that." Adding the operations bit to that was uh, a function of two things, really. Um, it's I wasn't on the I wasn't on the campaign management team and, and none of them reported to me. And also Aaron had left to go to Mediacom. So at that time, picking up some of the ops role was was beneficial in twofold. One, because I, I could do it and and there was there was a need for it. But also there was there was kind of the the selling through um, was a lot easier when you're, you're they're part of your team or people report to you if that makes sense. I mean, a, a it lot does of people, make sense. And 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 credit to Cadrian, nobody kicks and screams when you when you ask them to do stuff. But just in terms of uh, process generation and that kind of thing, um, it was significantly easier to hold to high to rather than be just plugging in product here and there to look at the whole the whole operation organically and 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 figure out what we need to do um, from the product side. And then director of data, because this sounds like a very quite the royal title. Yeah. So, so director of data happened after I was in 2015. I, I got married, and then I was in agency wars. And midway through agency wars, uh, I, I actually moved over to Catalyst, which is I think now Group M Connect or something like that. I was there. I was the only there for three months. Um, I didn't really. I don't think I made a splash or anything, and it really just wasn't home for me. I I you kind of get that grass is always greener thing. And again, Tessa and I stayed close. Like we, I was asking her advice um, throughout my time because I was going there to open up their trade desk. And I just, it was a lot of, it was a lot different than IPG. Let, let me say that. So when I, when I came back, it actually happened. It was a Wednesday. I texted, I texted, uh, Tessa asked if we could, we could have a chat. Uh, on Tuesday, Wednesday, we had the chat and, I was just like I I I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. I don't want to I don't want to you know bitch and moan, but I'm I think I'm ready to come home. And then she's like, "You want to come back?" And that that happened on Wednesday. Then uh, Thursday, I got my paperwork to come back, and Friday, I resigned from uh, Catalyst. Okay, you've been talking about Tessa uh, quite a bit, so we should clarify that you were talking about Tessa Ollendorf, who is Tessa currently Ollendorf, the managing yes. director of Mighty Hive. Yes, sorry, should have had that in. No worries. And if anyone's listening to this, we had Tessa on the podcast uh, about a year, I want to say about a year and a half ago. She was episode, geez, she was episode 32. So if anyone's listening to this, go back and check out Tessa's story as well. We've got that. Yeah, you can see if, see if mine lines up. 
No, it's cool. It's like we're creating. It's like we're creating like this media people universe. It's like for sure, for or sure. kind of like Star Wars. Like I don't know, Solo and she's the Mandalorian. I guess there, there you go. It's all in the <laughs> there same. We go. It's all tied together in the same universe. We, you should you should patent it to call it like like the the uh, media people universe, like MPU, like they do the the, <laughs> the MPU. I love that. Oh um, God, I could go on about comic books forever. That's a separate <laughs> podcast. Fair, fair. So yeah, Tessa 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 was great. Oh, open arms, let me come back. And when we sat down, there was there was. Do I want to go back to director of product? I didn't want to do operations because you, I got. They, they, well, frankly, the team had grown up, grown so much that it was unfeasible for me to do operations and that. And also in conjunction, Aaron was coming back with me as as the GM. So so a lot of that operation stuff was covered. And we thought product and we we're like, well, you got pulled in so many different ways doing product. Why don't you choose data? Well, same thing happened because as we know, at that time, the data market and data landscape started to change drastically. So <laughs> I should have just been product or product data. I think I was data and data strategy or we, we kind of changed whenever as as suited um and and came back and, and really just just started to dig in on on new product creation from from primarily from the use of data and i think honestly that's probably where they they've pivoted with the matter kind uh, let's talk about your departure and your decision to go out on your own and start control x yep was that always kind of like stewing in the background? Like how long and how much thought did you put into it before you finally said, I'm out, I'm going out on my own? Yeah. So it, it, honestly, I'm, uh, I'm, well, while I don't think that much about uh, astrology, I am an over-emotional Pisces. And uh, what was happening was I, I, I wasn't really happy at work and I just kind of kind of had had some personal things going on and I wasn't happy at work. And I, 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 I took some time off from Cadron, took like a month off at, at the beginning of the year, came back, started to do my job again. And I was like I was like a lot of the strategy started to change. Right. Like Harvey Carroll left and Graham came in and there was there was a, a movement in a direction that that it's not that it was a bad direction by any means. There's no commentary from from me on that. But it's it was a direction that I didn't see myself fit in. And I had learned over my my time off that it was probably best to keep me happy, or I'll just become stir crazy and I'll I'll, I'll do dumb shit, frankly. <laughs> so I I ended ended up uh, I, I I I talked with um, with some people within the within the Cadron uh, within or Cadron people, and and it was it seemed like it was probably a good idea if we we uh, we separated. And again, not ba- not in bad terms. Whatever was hugs, hugs and kisses all around, and and I left and and got went out on my own. I mean, when you sat down and you spoke to your wife about it, I mean, how did that go over? Because usually, when someone wants to be entrepreneurial and they're going to leave the workforce and go on their own, you got to get the family's buy-in for that. So, totally. if you don't mind, tell me a little bit about the conversation you had with her. Absolutely. So, so let's let's be honest. I am a I am a margin manager and a and a uh, biz dev kind of person. So I had work before I left. <laughs> Let's say that. So I had, I had a couple clients and, and a couple gigs that, that were ver- through a variety of means, be they, be they for, through like government grants and, and propelling, like I was going down to St. Catharines to see the, the cattle guys and help them with their data management a couple days a week. So I covered my, 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 my salary. And, and that was really, that, that takes the difficult part out of the conversation. 
if you think about it, right? My wife was nothing more than supportive when it comes to going out on my own. Um, She could see why. And she also, she's been there from from the beginning. My wife and I started dating a month after I started at Adconian. And she and I worked at Hemingway's together. So we had known each other and then we started dating. And she knew me as this person that was making 35K and then was able to double that salary in the first year just by learning and all of that. And and I'd kind of lost some of that fire in the in the last couple of years. You get you get cushy with the director title, right? So, I ended up I ended up talking with her, and she wanted to see the passion come back and 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 me me go. She'd also seen the successes on the way, and and the the business relationships I've made, and my network was was fairly fairly big and and cultivated, and I, I've kind of developed my own personal brand that that I think translated well in the industry. So it was it was kind of an. Uh, it was kind of a no brainer for me to try to be on my own. Um, and it, and it worked out well, you know, there's, you, you make a couple mistakes at the beginning. Let's just say the, the January, January after I started control X was, was a very, very, very dry January, <laughs> um, in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, contract work. So we, 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 as a, as a family, uh, learned a lot and she's been, she's been nothing but supportive since. What was the biggest challenge you had getting uh, Control X off the ground? Honestly, saying no, saying no to certain jobs, right? Like I, I did a lot of different things. I did a lot of ad ops. I did a lot of, of, of data curation and, and all of that stuff and platform onboarding, be it SSP, DMP, uh, DSP, any of the P's. I did a lot, <laughs> lot, I did a lot of that stuff. And so people, when they found out I was on my own and I had my own consultancy and, and, and I was, I was working working on certain client work, they would ask me to do X, Y, and Z. And I, I started to do really, really in business, what you're supposed to do is the same thing and just, and just more or less customize the rinse and repeat. So if you're onboarding a DMP, the documentation is essentially the same across all the platforms. And then you build out your documentation on top of that, and then you curate it to your client. But that's for DMPs, and that takes a long time. Once you start adding SSPs and all of that, I just I was doing, you know, Mondays, Mondays was I'm trafficking creative. Tuesdays was I'm onboarding a DMP. Thursdays was I'm building sales decks um, to, because people need help getting into agencies. It was just so many different things that I lost. I didn't have focus on one thing. So it was I, I felt anxious and stressed out all the time because everything was go, go, go. There was no real calm area. And I know I know you, you, as an entrepreneur, you're not supposed to look for calm, but there was no consistency. I think that's the key thing right there that you said consistency. Like I, like I'm not an entrepreneur at all. I mean, I do a light bit of consulting here and there, but it's not a full-time gig whatsoever. But I will say though, that I found that in a, just as a sales rep, places I've thrived at the most are those that kind of figure out what they want to do or what they do best. And they just stick to that. So you're not running with a hundred different ideas. It's three or four pieces of collateral, three or four pieces of talking points. And then you just nail down who you think you should be going after, and then you just go full speed ahead. I completely sure. concur with what you're saying. Totally. So let's also, t- we've been talking about the left side of your brain quite a bit, but you indulge the right side, even though growing up, it seemed like you were quite the creative individual. Yep. Uh, Canada Brands, you told us about the problem you're trying to solve with it uh, in the cannabis industry. Just kind of like, where did, like, when did you decide to say go with the second company, even though you've been like, Control X has been around for, would you say two years? Two years, yeah. It? Two years. Yeah. So yeah, where, where did it come around to say, you know, let's start a second company? So it really was, it really was um, looking at the cannabis industry. So for for the last, oh, I think it was almost a year, um, I was I was helping Lyft, Lyft and Co. Um, 
manage their ad ops and, and I re rejigged their entire ad ops thing. I just, I went into that because it was a, it was a client that was kind of consistent. They needed a lot of help. And so there was a lot of hours and I was able to, to able to rely on them for the lion's share of what I needed to make. And then, and then, you know, do, do some other, other little, little project based ones, but I wanted something that was re re recurring. So, you know, my monthly hours, and I, John Kamen, John Kamen was there and I know him back from the tour star digital days. So what I essentially approached him, he needed, he actually, he approached me saying, we need Adam's help. Can you, do you know somebody? And I'm like, Oh, I could do it. And I, I went in there, uh, rejigged their, their ad server and all of that. And we had, a we had a lot of good ideas to move forward and then COVID-19 hit. And if you don't know Lyft and co you can check them out go rate rate uh rate your favorite weed on it but also the <laughs> the uh the lift expo was is is kind of the one of the bigger cannabis expos in canada and covid19 hit and you can imagine that that's no longer profitable so unfortunately they had to lay, lay off all of their staff um i've i've actually found out on my birthday that i was that i don't no longer had a contract with them no oh, geez happy birthday but, yeah really but i was you know I, I we knew it was coming uh john came and did 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 me a service by continuing to have me updated as an outside contractor. He didn't have to do that, but, but he did. And, and, and what happened was I, I, I still made a lot of connections within the cannabis side of it, but I also looked at what we, what, what was doing like, like Lyft, Lyft could make a ton of money on just the digital ad stuff because cannabis uh, clients have nowhere to advertise. And I'm talking like the big LPs, like the, the canopy brands and the, the Aurora brands. And, and they all, they all are buying the Afria brands. They are all buying, but they, they don't necessarily have, they've got, you know, a, a handful of places to go to. They can't do long tail network stuff. They can't do the YouTube bumpers. They can't do any of that cool stuff that, that we, we like everywhere else. And, and, I started thinking I, the, my entire career has been based on what's the, there's a problem and I want to solve it and productize that problem and then, and then move on. <laughs> so I, I looked at what, what was going on and the, and everybody who was sending me creative was sending me video assets, but Lyft didn't have a video player and I'm not sure where they were playing their videos. I'm not sure if Leafly or, or um, weed maps or any of those have it, but what they have, everybody's making the assets, building the assets, but there, there's nowhere to put it. There's the the odd networks and and that kind of thing or private marketplace that accepts cannabis and all that, but there's nothing really productized on that side. And then and then I just started thinking video. Where where are we going to go? Where are they going to put video in? I I I figured if there's no video available or no sponsorship, like the best way best way to move forward in cannabis would be to have kind of sponsored content and editorialized, right? Because it's a, it's a very, it's, yes, it's a, it's a consumable intoxicant, but it's also a very, very community specific brand where if you want your information, you, everybody kind of goes to the same spot. That's why Lyft has done well. That's why Leafly's done well. That's why Weed Maps have done well. They've, 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 there's kind of those pinnacles within it. And I, I look, there's bug tender reviews and that kind of thing, but I'm fascinated by the business. I want to know, I want to know those Canadianity stories that you, that you hear of of the grandmother the grandmother having a, a grow up in her backyard and, and and turning that into a business or or the franchisee or the franchiser who who you know had a bunch of A&Ws or Wendy's or something and pivoted to cannabis because he knows how to franchise things. So there's I thought there was a lot of cool cool versions of that story. And I just wanted to do videos. So I've got, I've got a video coming out tomorrow. That is my first, my first business profile. And it's, it's on uh, spirit leaf, little Italy. So functionally I, I sat down with the owner of it and he told me how he got into cannabis, how he was, um, 
uh, the you know the different moves he needed to make. He tells me about his staff. He tells me about their their operations and and tells me about what's hard in cannabis. And I thought that would be cool because it's if you look at kind of like a B two B two C model. So uh, yes, it can be for consumers if consumers want to know about their about their um, their local dispensary or if they're looking for a dispensary or if there's cannabis cannabis tourism in there, um, they can find kind of a, a a source to give them all the information they need. And that's really what I want to provide. Jordan, uh, yep. if someone wants to get in touch with you to talk about either company for Control X or Canada Brands, I mean, yep. what's the best way to get in touch with you? What email or what site can they go to? Uh, you can go to uh, canadabrands.ca. That's Canada spelt with two N's. Um, and jb at canadabrands.ca or jb at controlx.ca or uh, LinkedIn. I just, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. TikTok when I figure it out. <laughs> any 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 place. This has been fantastic. So let's go through a couple of rapid fire questions. Yep. The campaign you're most proud of. Boston Pizza. So it wasn't necessarily a uh, campaign, but if you think of me as a product guy and a and a, and a biz dev guy, we the relationship that Cadrion uh, Cadrion cultivated with Boston Pizza was amazing. They let us try a bunch of different different stuff from the data management. I had direct access to their online CRM from their order platform. So I could start to look at measurements. We started doing analysis of their out of home versus, versus, um, versus takeout items. And they were great because they would, they would pump the gluten-free menu if we wanted them to, just to see if we could get an uptick in, in gluten-free items on orders and stuff like that. So that it was just, it was a really, really collaborative, um, relationship. And that's why it's my favorite. Your favorite movie. Uh, favorite movie. Um, I fluctuate between all of the Guy Ritchie films. Oddly enough, my wife and I have plans to watch uh, The Gentleman tonight. Um, and then, and then my wife and I also bought we or also watched We Bought a Zoo, both because we're going to be aspiring or we're aspiring farmers, and that's our next move. <laughs> I'm also a Guy Ritchie uh, film fan, and I like The Gentleman, but I got to say, Rock and Rolla never gets old. So Rock and Rolla was I, I almost put Rock and Rolla as my favorite one because <laughs> it, it is it is the best one I, in my opinion I, I i heard guy Ritchie or the uh the gentleman falls flat in a couple places but i'm still excited well look I mean, not to digress but he needs to make the sequel because he promised us at the end of the film the real rock and roll for of the sure time. for sure i'm guy I, I remember that every time I watch it, which is probably once a month, and then I get ang <laughs> ang angry, just like I'm angry that Avatar still hasn't come out. <laughs> Guy, if you're listening, we need the sequel. We need the oh. real rock and roller. Well, he definitely is listening. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite video game of all time? Well, La Last of Us Part 1 and 2, I but I am notoriously bad at video games. I was the kid that got the controller taken away or was handed the unplugged one. I but but I like to watch them. Uh my wife plays plays them and I and I watch it like it's a movie. <laughs> if Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Uh that guy that the guy from uh What's his name? Tormund Giants Bane or whatever the the the, the, wildling. the wildlings. Yeah, yeah what, the, the, the bearded ginger wildling. The the actor's name. I looked them up. It's Christopher, and I don't know if I'm getting the last name correct. Hiu, I think, or Hiu. I think the J is silent. I, also, I follow him. I follow him on Instagram. He did have COVID nineteen at one point. Yeah, I follow him too. He did have that. Yeah, that's correct. Your favorite book? Playing with Fire. Theo Fleury. Again, I can't read fiction for some reason. <laughs> uh, look, I'm the same way too. I read nothing but biographies or comic books. That is my fiction. There you go. Your favorite song? 
Uh, hands down, Sweet Judy, Blue Eyes, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. The best advice you have ever received? Uh, it's from my dad, my grandfather, uh, follow your gut. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? Uh, can I swear on this? <laughs> go for it. <laughs> yeah, just bleep it out. I, I would just, I'd say chill the fuck out and everything will be fine. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? Uh, farmer. Um, it, it's, we will, we will do that. I mean, my wife and I are leaving the city in, in February to, to, uh, downsize in order to buy a farm. Not sure why. Um, it's just, <laughs> it's just always been that way. <laughs> Frankly, uh, she grew up in the country. I quasi grew up in the country. So back to land. <laughs> Jordan, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.